0: Welcome back, and good afternoon. Uh, before we get started and witnessing the baptism of Angela Wright, uh, we'd like to sing a hymn. So grab your hymn books and let's stand. This is one that she has chosen of one of her favorites. Turn to number 506. 506. In Christ alone, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. Lamentations 3, 24. 506.
1: Angela Wright, to believers' baptism. We do baptism a little differently here. and we typically won't baptize children because we want each candidate to be able to truly confess from their heart Jesus Christ as Lord. Sometimes it, um, often these little ones will respond in repentance and faith early on. We're not sure. We always like it to be give people an opportunity to articulate the recognition of their sin and the recognition of Christ as their Savior. Jesus said, if you will confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father who is in heaven. And that's what this is about. It's a symbolic testimony of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. And we do this through immersion after those confession those candidates confess, indeed, Jesus Christ as Lord. So at this time, I'd like to invite Angela to give the church, the body of Christ, her confession and testimony.
2: I stand before you today, broken and ashamed. I have spent a majority of my life in rebellion and revolt against my Creator, Savior, and Redeemer. It is my prayer that my testimony is proof to the grace, abounding mercy, and patience of a loving God for His glorification. I was born to two working parents and attended a fundamental Baptist church from my earliest earliest memory. My family attended church religiously three times a week at the same time that I received my public education. At a very young age, I made a profession of faith and was baptized. However, I made this profession with a very poor and superficial understanding of the character and nature of God, and certainly almost no understanding of the gospel. It was not too terribly long after I was baptized that I started to wrestle with the discrepancies and in the information I was taught at school five days a week and the information I learned at church for a few hours a week. When I asked questions at church, I was told that I was not a good Christian and had no faith because I did not blindly believe. It was shortly after I started attending the church that I stand in now that I read a quote in one of Gordon Hall's teaching handouts, and I started to weep. It was a quote from C.S. Lewis that said something to the extent that the heart cannot believe what the mind does not understand. This completely summed up my younger me. In addition to a lack of understanding, I also witnessed church infighting, church splits, pedophilia within the church and a household that was completely void of any Christian living. We had every home interior picture of scripture on the walls. In curio cabinets full of knickknacks, but there was no Bible reading, prayer, or discipleship. We reserved telling my father any bad news about carpet spills or broken appliances or anything that would cost any money that we did not have until we were in the pews on Sunday. My father would be forced to respond with his in-church Christian personality rather than the explosive and physically abusive Monday through Saturday one. Our home was a war zone was constant screaming between my parents and I bore the brunt of my father's physical outbursts of anger. The beatings would most often start because we lived in a constant financial deficit and any financial need was enough to set him off. I can clearly remember that I said I lived through those events and circumstances that I vowed that I would create a different life for the family I hope to have one day. Once in high school, I had stopped attending church regularly, hated to be at home, and counted down the days until my escape. I had by this time deemed the church an organization of hypocrites, including my own Christian parents. I had also decided to abandon the God of my Wednesdays and Sundays and worship the same dead green presidents that the world worshiped. I knew that I did need saving but I would save myself with a path of financial security and would set my sights on a career that allowed me to make a living that alleviated the stressors of the life I grew up in and my complete spiritual ignorance. I also believed that my ticket to heaven had been punched because I believed in the existence of God. But at this point, I wanted God to stay in his own lane, in me and mine, because I was ready to do everything that the world told me that I needed to do and could do to achieve my own personal success. The posters, television, and t-shirts told me that I could do anything a man could do and that I only live once. In order to make this happen the way I wanted and when I wanted, I didn't want anyone to lord over me. I would be the captain of my own ship and chart my own course the way I saw fit. And if I'm completely honest, looking back, while I did believe in God, I hated him. I hated his holiness, his perfection, and those who worshipped him. I left my home in Florida at 18 and moved to North Carolina for my college education. I put myself through school, working in restaurants and breweries and any other job I could find. I was a member of a sorority and engaged in all of the made-for-movie college behavior. There were moments that I would question my choices as a result of conviction or conscience, but the desire to engage in a simple lifestyle always won. Once I graduated from college, I was trailblazing my career, working my way up the rungs of the corporate ladder. I sat in the boardroom, the only woman, and by far the youngest, working on billion-dollar stock offerings, acquisitions, and compliance. I did everything the world told me to do to be happy, but with every promotion raise our new opportunity, the feeling of despair became deeper and more profound. With every progressive move, the reality that my life was empty and meaningless became heavier. Despite this realization, I trudged on to have the hallmark version of the perfect family, perfect house, and perfect career. Fast forward years later, and I was married in my early 30s. We started a business together and became pregnant two months after we were married. The control that I took of my life was working and everything was going exactly as I had planned. Our business was thriving and we would easily have the large brood of children that we had planned. In my restless pregnancy nights, I would lay in bed and think of all the ways I would give my kids a leg up in life. Funding prepaid college plans, private school planning, and buying toys that would make my baby smarter. I had my whole life in my hands... And I was doing it pretty well, so I thought. A few months before our son, Vin, was to be born, a routine ultrasound diagnosed him with a terminal illness that indicated that his life expectancy after birth would not exceed a month. While the diagnosis ended up being a bad one, this domino tripped a series of other medical events. I had multiple trips to the hospital on IV trips to pause preterm labor, contractions, to epidurals and many other drug therapies before my very sick baby that was under continuous assault in the womb was delivered into my arms from the first couple of hours of his life. He screamed and writhed in pain. He was unable to digest anything and could not regain his birth weight. He was diagnosed with failure to thrive, and we were at the doctor's office all the time, fighting for a way to feed our starving child. These very early days and months of parenthood were the first indicators that the wheels were coming off the bus. And we were swerving through oncoming traffic, metal and concrete, with no sense of direction and absolutely no way to steer. We were wandering in the depths of the unknown. Finn's constant screaming made us captive to our home. He got older and missed every milestone, had no receptive speech, and was clearly not tracking developmentally with his peers. A state of perpetual panic set in and made its home in our midst. The challenges with Finn were immediately followed by three lost pregnancies. We sought fertility treatment for another child and became pregnant with Stella. At two and a half years old, two months before Stella was born, Finn was diagnosed with autism. I lay in bed next to him and wept bitterly. I mourned the life he wouldn't have and the life I had meticulously envisioned for him. I was angry, and I reserved most of the anger specifically for God. Why did he do this to me when I deliberately stayed out of his way? I shook my fist at God and dug in and resolved to fix my son myself. I would not allow this to be his life or my reality, and I could do it alone. Every passing day revealed evidence that we had no control over our child. His behavior in our lives were spiraling. To say our marriage was on the rocks is an understatement. We were hanging on by our fingernails. Snide remarks by family and distancing by friends that, know, that had no idea how to interact with us in our situation left us as a couple bitterly alone. But the aloneness was felt most profoundly when we were in our house alone together. We were ships passing in the night, and neither of us had the prescription to course correct. I was awful to my husband, and I said things that I wish I could take back. James tells us that the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness in my tongue could set any forest on fire. I lived in a perpetual state of self-loathing for the choices I had made for my son and the life I took from him. And my own self-hatred was projected on the closest thing to permanence in my life at that time. It's only by the grace of God that we endured. Once Finn started therapy, I became friends with another mother who had a child with a similar diagnosis. After we had spent quite a bit of time together, she told me she wanted to give me something but didn't want me to be offended. It was a book called Finding God in Autism, and I was offended, not by her book, but that she didn't know that I was a Christian. I knew all the Bible stories, grew up in the church, and again believed in the existence of God, so much so that I knew my state of affairs was the result of his doing. I opened that book the first day she gave it to me, and I devoured it. I have no idea what it said, whether it was heretical or not, but what I do remember is a line in the book where the author asked rhetorically, whether or not God could or would heal your child if he was capable of moving mountains. I did believe that God could move mountains, and from here I picked up my Bible. Somewhere in this process of reading the Bible, I developed a thirst for the Word of God. The more that I was in the Word, the more I wanted, and the more the nature of God was revealed to me. And the more I was in the Word, the more my condition was laid bare before me. The Word of God was so convicting. The light of God made a starker contrast against my darkness. I became aware that I was so very lost, and began praying for salvation, while also praying for the recovery and healing of my son. I stayed in the Word, read commentaries and books on theology, and listened to online sermons. Years passed with the same routine and fervor, pursuing God, and Finn did not recover. He actually began to exhibit more OCD behaviors, which quickly eclipsed his autism. One day, while driving Finn home from school, I began to cry uncontrollably. I was exhausted, I was on my knees, and I couldn't live another moment in my constant state of despair. I cried out to Jesus and told him that I couldn't do this anymore. I told him that I surrender. I knew that I didn't have the reins, but I formally asked that I give all my burdens over to him. I asked that I live in his will, no matter the earthly cost. I wanted to live for him. Somewhere in the short years, in the long days, I realized that I had been trying to heal the wrong patient. I was the one that was sick and needed a great physician. But I didn't want Jesus just as a means to heal the symptoms of my messy life. I wanted him to heal a hard heart. I was asked when I was converted, and to be honest, I really don't know the answer. Once I started pursuing God, I couldn't stop. My sanctification has been progressive, and every day I love the Lord more. Convictions continue to go stronger, and the things I used to believe were benign. I can no longer listen to or look upon. I do know that somewhere in the midst of my prideful rebellion and sin-fueled existence, Jesus plucked me from the pig pen and showed me what I'd been eating. Once I had a glimpse of my almighty God, I couldn't turn back, and I haven't. With each passing day, I try, and I often fail, to live as an example of one who truly loves Christ. When I was a child, I used to sing a song in Sunday school that said, Your walk talks. And your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. I want to live a life for Jesus, and I want to be a testimony to Christ by the way that I live and treat others. While our lives continue to be burdened, we are so abundantly blessed. I now have peace in our circumstances because I know we are living within God's will. His providence has led us to where we are today, and I am humbled by his goodness and provision daily. Our suffering, while sometimes heavy, is so much lighter now that we know someone who is just, merciful, and loving is in control, and that everything works for good for those that love the Lord. We are but a mist, one day here and one day not, and I'm grateful for every moment that brought me to the feet of Christ. While it's not the life I would have planned for myself, now I wouldn't have it any other way. In choosing obedience and a life lived for the Lord, my cup really does runneth over with blessings. I see them daily in the small and the large. My testimony is that Jesus Christ is Lord. The wages of my sin is death. Jesus died under the heavy and grotesque weight of my filthy sins. he sought me, and he bought me with his redeeming blood. I am washed in the blood of the perfect lamb. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong to God. All that I am is a result of his amazing grace.
1: Thank you, my sister, for this wonderful testimony of God's amazing grace. Now I'd like to ask for your confession. What is your confession?
0: Jesus is Lord.
1: Jesus is Lord indeed. And based on your confession of Christ as Lord, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of His death, Raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. And if you haven't experienced a, a testimonial before a confession and baptism, I hope it was meaningful for you. It is for me. It always is. brings me back Reminded of my circumstance as well and I hope it does for you also. Let's continue to pray for one another, Angela in particular, and for each other as we continue to walk in newness of life. Let us pray. Father, we're thankful for Angela and her testimony for all of life's circumstances up to this point that she has recognized that indeed these are your Providence, and I'm thankful that even in a frowning providence, she has seen the smiling face of your amazing grace, and I pray that testimony would also be encouraging for each one of us to continue on, to be able to endure hardship, to go through difficult times, but also see the peace and the joy and the love that you have provided, a glimpse of your glory and a, and a forward look to that which is ours forevermore. I pray that your blessings be upon Angela and her family, upon this church that she is united with through her confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and her testimony in believer's baptism. Pray that you bless her and keep her. May your face continue to shine upon her and all of us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Well, let's stand together and sing and to be dismissed with 104. amazing grace. We'll sing the first and the last. 104.)